Tonight, 1,600 unfortunate souls board the 20th transport train to Auschwitz. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Good evening and welcome back. Last week we spoke to Claire and she told us uh, about her incredible story. But she also mentioned about the 20th train, the train that carried her mother and her aunt to Auschwitz. And tonight we're going to learn more about that story. We'll start with Sunday afternoon, April 18th, 1943. Simon Granowski was spending a beautiful spring day with his playmates in the Mailand Transit Camp, which was located about 25 kilometers from Brussels, Belgium. The boys soon noticed a small group of men who were talking and laughing at the other end of the courtyard. They seemed like such a nice group of adults. They were all dressed up in very attractive green uniforms. Who could these strangers be? With the level of curiosity typical of small boys his age, Simon and his his, uh, friends approached the group, who greeted them with smiles and pats on the head. And in return, Simon and his friends showed off the rectangular cardboard signs hanging around their necks. Each sign displayed a number. Simon and his friends soon continued on with their playtime activities. Now in the morning their cardboard numbers would determine which cattle car they would enter on their journey to Auschwitz on Belgium's 20th transport train. SS Oberscharfuhrer Kurt Ash watched the newly arrived green uniformed policeman, the Ordnungspolizei, mingle in a friendly way with the transit camp children. It made his skin crawl. As Adolf Eichmann's special representative for Jewish affairs in Belgium, Kurt Ash was determined to make sure absolutely nothing would go wrong with that transport. He even staged a dress rehearsal, which was why the children were wearing their cardboard signs that morning. Ash wanted to make sure that all the camp inmates would know how to proceed to their assigned cattle car in a very orderly fashion. So he decided not to confront the friendly officers in the green uniforms. He needed their help, and he swallowed his pride and let them be friendly with the children. That night, nervous excitement broke out in the dormitories at Mechlin. The Gestapo had cleared out all of the Belgian prisons, and they they transported everyone there. So the camp population now topped out at more than 1,600 very desperate people. Among that group, there were some newly arrived resistance fighters, and they were determined not to go quietly into the night. So with them into the camp, they brought contraband knives and hacksaws. They intended to make their escape from the transport train. Most of the people in the camp, however, were resigned to their fate. They simply packed their belongings, they located their friends, and they said their final farewells. According to the camp records, 1,631 Jews, including 262 children, were ready to be transported. The oldest deportee, he was Jacob Blom. 
He was number 584. Jacob was 90 years old. The youngest inmate, Suzanne Kaminsky, she was number 215. She was not yet six weeks old. By the next night, Suzanne and her mother would disappear from the face of the earth at Auschwitz. That night in the city, three former Belgian Boy Scouts also made preparations. The good deed they were planning for the next day was beyond all belief. They intended to attack a well-armed German transport train and free as many prisoners as they possibly could. With no support from the regular resistance movement, and armed with only one small pistol and a few bullets, along with a pair of pliers and a makeshift ra- railroad lantern, Jura Lifchitz, Robert Mastriau, and Jean Frankelmann intended to carry out one of the most daring acts of resistance in the entire war. The next day would be the moment of truth. Meanwhile, SS Oberscharfuhrer Kurt Ash woke up early on the morning of April 19th. He called for his driver to pick him up at 7.30 because he was anxious to get to work. Upon arrival at the camp, he looked over the scene with a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. Ah, Yesterday's dress rehearsal had paid off. Internees were moving in an orderly fashion between rows of green-uniformed policemen and the SS guards. Everyone seemed to know where to go. Then, suddenly, things went momentarily awry. An elderly gentleman, he was number 522, according to his sign, he broke ranks and successfully made his way over to the Oberscharfuhrer. His name was Fritz Wallach. He had been a wealthy bank director in Brussels. And in an abundance of caution, he had paid Ash 25,000 marks back in February for a guarantee that his name would not end up on a transport list. Yet here he was, about to be transported to Auschwitz. So at this moment, he spotted the man who assured him that it would never happen. You dishonorable wretch! shouted the banker. You will get the punishment you deserve. Kurt Ash experienced a knot in his stomach. Would his superiors in Berlin hear rumors about his corrupt behaviors? Once all the 1,600 deportees were loaded into the railway cars, the train began to move on what would be its last trip to Auschwitz. As his locomotive was about to round the bend near Burtmirbeek, the engineer blew his train whistle. As he cut back on the throttle, clouds of steam rolled off the engine. It was at that moment that he detected danger. Up ahead, a red signal was glowing brightly on the tracks. The engineer immediately hit the brakes hard, but it was too late. Instinctively, he knew that the engine and the first couple of cars were going to roll over the signal lamp before he could bring the entire train to a halt. 
The unfortunate engineer only hoped that he could stop in time, not knowing exactly what dangerous conditions existed up ahead. Immediately after coming to a complete stop, the train came under gunfire from an unknown number of attackers in the woods. The engineer, his crew, and the entire complement of German guards immediately took cover to assess the situation. Now, after that initial burst of gunfire, the German guards cautiously regrouped and came to the conclusion that they were not facing a massive resistance force. So they began moving carefully along that massive length of the train. Meanwhile, the three attackers were busy trying to pry open the heavy doors of several of the cattle cars. Robert met with the most success, pushing open the door and shining his flashlight inside. He'd see the faces of 50 very frightened people. Flee! Flee! He exhorted them, handing out 50 franc notes to those who decided to run. Unfortunately, many were paralyzed with fear, and they refused to move. Now, by the time the three young attackers had made it safely into the woods, unfortunately, only 17 people were running with them. 17 out of 1,630. Ultimately, the train arrived at Auschwitz with fewer than 50 names missing from the transport lists. As I say, most of the 1,600 passengers actually arrived at the death camp and they never lived to see another sunrise. But against all odds, Jura Lifchitz, Robert Mastrio, and Jean Franklemont had successfully stopped a heavily armed German transport train. They freed a number of inmates, and they escaped with their lives. Now, only Robert would survive the war, but unfortunately, Claire's mother and aunt were also among the doomed. No other transport train left Brussels for Auschwitz. After listening to that story, uh, I have to wonder... Number one, how people felt before getting on that train. And whether, I know there were some people who, who were aware of where it was going and, and maybe not the fate that awaited them once they got to their final destination, but probably knew that it was not going to be good regardless. I think you're right. And uh, I did mention that... Um the night before, everybody was saying their final goodbyes. They were packing up. They were resigned to their fate. And while they might have suspected that it could be terrible, I think maybe uh, hope was still alive that maybe they were just going to a hard labor camp and that they could work and survive the experience. Well, I know that a lot of people, when they originally heard about the camps, uh, and where they were going, they were all told that they were work camps. They didn't know to what extent the camps would actually, you know, go to uh, in the end. It wasn't until much later after the war. There had been rumors, but it wasn't until after World War II when people actually went in and liberated the camps that they actually saw all of the things that were happening. And then you had the testimonies of people who survived the camps that spoke of what went on in there. Um, but you have, you mentioned that the oldest person was 
93? 90. 90. You had somebody who was 90 years old, had had a whole lifetime of experience, and now was going to this unknown fate. You had children who were infants who were being put on this train, who hadn't even had a lifetime of experiences and, and joy uh, in their life yet. They haven't even lived. And then you have the innocent kids who are just playing being kids. Uh, it's startling. Yes, and with uh, Jacob Blom, who was the 90-year-old, uh, I don't want to pretend that I could get into his head at the time, but I know if I were sitting in that situation at 90 years old, uh, I'd, I'd think, well, no matter what I do, my life is, is pretty much over. Um, I wouldn't be able to survive the hard labor at the end of the uh, trip, but nor would I probably be able to survive a life on the run, running through the woods, if I could even run through the woods, and then trying to survive in hiding somewhere. So for, for folks uh, in that upper age group, I think they were resigned to whatever happened. And as you mentioned, the ones that were too young to even know their lives hadn't even started. That's true. And then um, aside from that part of the story, um, I'm sure that there was that little glimpse of hope from some people when, when things started to go haywire, when they had to stop the train and there was that sound of gunfire, there had to have been some little glimpse of hope for people that maybe I will get out of this. Maybe this isn't the end of the line for me. Maybe we can be saved. And then, too, uh, some people uh, just decided that there was more safety by staying with the train than in jumping out and running into the woods while gunfire was occurring. And a lot of folks probably uh, thought, you know, I just wouldn't be able to handle life on the run uh, anyways. So... And by the way, uh, most of the 1,600 people did not have that choice. Uh, mm -hmm. These uh, brave uh, young resistance fighters uh, could only open up a couple cars. And sure. so uh, most of the 1,600 didn't even have the choice in the first place. And so right. we don't know who did, who didn't. But I, I can understand uh, why there would be some hesitancy for those uh, you know, who did have the opportunity. The, uh, they also, the, the Nazis also had what they called the chef de wagon. And this is a person who uh, was one of the deportees who was pretty much in charge of keeping everything under control in, in the cr mm. train car and keeping people calm and reasonable and, and this and that and the other. And so uh, they did have these, these t supervisor type people. And the other thing I'll mention too is that what was going on in these death camps was a high state secret. And the penalty for talking about what happened in the death camps was death. Whether you were a death camp guard or whoever, if you talked about what went on in those camps, the penalty was death. So it was a state secret, and that's why uh, nothing really uh, got out more than rumors. Um, and people who might have escaped from those camps uh, when they came and told the stories. I mean, they were so incredible. Maybe uh, people just had a hard time believing them and thought maybe they were exaggerated. And so consequently, uh, a lot didn't rise above the, the rumor level. So I sure. think for the most part, there were 1,600 people crossing their fingers and just hoping for the best. Right. Now, 
maybe you touched on it and I just didn't notice it, but were there any survivors that got off of the train that were able to relay the story of the 20th train? Or are all of these just accounts of people who were guards or soldiers on the train with the... Um, you know, that's a, a good prisoners. question, Gary. And, and my research uh, didn't result in any of the actual prisoners who escaped. Uh, Robert, who was one of the three uh, very brave resistance uh, fighters, he's the only one who survived. The others were captured shortly afterwards and killed, but um, he survived. And so we do have his account, and, and he right. did indicate that it was, it was really difficult to get them encouraged to flee. And as I mentioned, uh, they had 50-franc banknotes so that everybody would have a little cash. They um, needed to ambush the train at a bend where it would be slowing down naturally, but not too far from Brussels so that people could reasonably be expected to walk back into the city and disappear. Right. And they needed the woods that they could immediately disappear into. So it took uh, quite a bit of planning to identify the actual ambush site this event now as far as the train did they have to send a second train to get the people who were left behind and mm -hmm. to continue their trip to auschwitz or did that train uh, was unscathed as far as being able to work and continue on its trip and uh, what they decided to do was stick to their schedule and so the train continued on as soon after this as possible uh, with everybody hoping that it was just a handful of people that they would be missing. And sure enough, uh, you know, uh, 50 people out of 1,631 people, that was truly just a, a small handful of folks that they were missing. Oh, absolutely. But the nice thing about, about it is that was the last time they attempted a transport train from Brussels, Belgium to Auschwitz. Really? So even even though they may not have been as successful as they had hoped to to be, they were successful enough in preventing other trains from getting out of Brussels. And I think that was a combination of uh, Nazi bureaucracy decision-making also uh, based on what time of the war it was. but um, And that it just probably wasn't worth it in the end. Yeah. About the only one who was really distraught over this was the SS Oberscharfuhrer, uh, Kurt Ash, because sure enough, some of his corruption uh, did indeed get back, and he had been hoping that he could get a posting in Berlin. He did not. Mm. And so um, his his perfect, uh, perfectly executed plan did not work out. So he was the big loser, uh, second to uh, a distant second to all of the folks on the train who lost their lives. Yeah, but uh, his fate was not as bad as those folks uh, no. who definitely did not deserve what they what they were given. That's right. That's right. So uh, it it was an uplifting moment for the resistance to the Nazis, but uh, unfortunately, it's uh, not an uplifting moment when you realize how many people uh, did not escape. That's true. That's true. Uh, but all in all, uh, I have to say. Uh, an incredible story, and also uh, I know for Claire it gave her closure as far as what happened to her family. Yes, uh, she did not know that her mother and aunt were on this 20th transport for many, many years. That's right. As, as I remember it, uh, we were talking to her uh, during an event uh, that we had gone to when we were screening our documentary, and she brought that up to us. She brought that to our attention, that she was reading the book about the 20th train, and... I, I was, was it 
their name that was in the back? Yeah. Uh, of the, the book? The book uh, listed uh, everybody who was on the transport. And uh, as she was reading through those names, can you imagine the surprise she must have felt when, oh, there's her mother's name, there's her aunt's name, with their number. Now, I recall that I, her, her mother's number was in the 1400s. It might have been 1401. So she would have had to have been one of the last people to board the wow. train, you know, before it took off. I just but, get goosebumps thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, you know, a heck of a thing to be reading a book, and then that's how you find out how one of your parents perished. But yeah. uh, it did indeed happen that way. And um, sometimes history unfolds in ways that uh, aren't agreeable to us. That's true. That's true. But again, like I said, uh, at least it's better to know um, what happened than to always have that lingering question of what could have happened. For sure. There was definitely closure there. Absolutely. Well, it's that time again. Uh, Once again. I'm Richard. I'm Gary. And this truly was an incredible story. 